0: folks welcome to the integral stage i'm apparently vermicelli coyote and i'll be your host for the next six hours of non-stop cowboy hat asmr soft noise so settle in chill out and let the barely audible sounds of my fingers moving lightly over the surface of my hat do your feelings for you and if that's not your bag um oh it's autopilot is entering the room we'll also be doing another episode of the integral stages soul of ai series in which we've been reaching out for More diverse, depth-oriented, and generally liminal web-type-ish perspectives on the rapidly emerging and probably world-changing, or at least world-disturbing, new digital tools that are being generated by or through human beings. Do neural nets, chatbots, and large language models represent the beginning of a fast-emerging cybernetic or multi-substrate consciousness? Are they merely automated reflections of the least interesting parts of a superficial mapping of human cognition? Are the tools we already have helping or deluding us? Do we stand at the brink of cyborg superconsciousness, a new era of silicon sages, a new trans narrative ecosystem, or a quick descent into an omni-hacked world of all-pervasive simulation in which no data is safe and no information is reliable, set against the backdrop of cascading unemployment and degenerating human cognitive capacity? Joining us today is a lovely guy who reached out in hopes that there was, I think he said, a non-zero chance of qualifying as a potential guest and i look forward to hearing what he thinks are the crucial points to understand the impact of this historical moment and what he thinks the dominant conversations on this topic are still leaving out so we're pleased to be joined by the hereditary king of the swedlovians it's david swedlow hi david
1: Hey, let's go. Lehman, it's very good to see you. Very good. I, I oh, love I your introductions. You, Those are the best part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could just wrap right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you said uh, a great thing in one of your messages to me, which is that your sense is our discussions are only catching a tiny bit of the surface and you'd like to wander from the most repeatedly scratched spots, which is a great phrase. Uh, And before we start wandering, I wonder how you would characterize the most repeatedly scratched spots. Like from your perspective, what issues are eating up most of the discourse and inquiry space around these topics?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say the obviously the two dominant ones at a very crude level of um, granularity are utopia dystopia, right? It's just the oh my God, this is the best thing ever. We're going to, all of our problems are over. All you have to do is automate everything. Just tell, tell your spreadsheet what you want it to do. Tell your email what you like your boss to know. Tell it to summarize everything for you and everything will be nice and hunky-dory. And, and, um, and obviously, you know, my, my sense so far is that the degree to which I take myself out of the equation when I'm interacting with any of these AI, bot, AI bots or software Is it's dissatisfying. It's like, doesn't actually scratch the edge that I'm looking for. It's like, oh, this is, it does feel a little bit two dimensional. It feels um, just like surface oriented stuff that is not really interacting with me, but it doesn't actually take very much to interact in a way that brings forth more nuance. After a while, that nuance also seems a little flat. So then it's like, okay, what am I, what questions do I need to ask to even go deeper? And chatbots is is a, a really fascinating thing. When I so, first saw Chat GPT come out in November last year, I was astonished. I was like, oh my God, the this has actually changed something. And there have been a couple of moments where that's happened. But it still doesn't fulfill the promise and I can feel the also the way that it's changing behind the scenes, right. It's becoming more constrained, more bound in the, the guardrails of what we can and can't do um, are more evident even if they're even if they're not explicit, right We're discovering the things that the questions where it says nope, sorry, can't do that. But the interestingly, looking at some of some, something like midjourney and some of the other image generation tools, um, I've seen some people do amazing work, and the way that they're crafting prompts is very different from the way that I would craft a prompt. It's allowing the interpretation of the dreamscape to be much more fluid rather than explicit. And uh, and it's a good starting point. It's kind of like, wow, this is interesting. Now let me see how I can shape that and move it in a, in a different direction. So that part of the utopian vision obviously has flaws in it the other side of it is the dystopian side and the way I'd color that is obviously we we mock the Terminator red eyes on you know it's going to come to come to kill us it's like you know it doesn't um it doesn't occur to me that it's going to be that blatant and certainly whenever I listen to um Greg and Jeff Hinton talking about as Godfather of AI this thing he's been working on for decades and now has Largely succeeded way beyond his dreams, right? (laughs) Earlier than he anticipated, but there's still like the danger is real. Like there's something that dawned on him about how this is different from what he imagined it would be. That has him pause. That doesn't mean I don't hear him saying it has. It's developing weapons to come and annihilate us. That's not what he's saying. But the fact that he, of all people, is now Worried in a way that has him pause and reflect, step back from his employment at Google in order to be able to speak more bluntly about it, is is reason enough for pause of looking at this in a deeper way. But the people that I hear interviewing Jeff Hinton and others is like, can you give me some idea of how this would go about? How would it? How how is this existent- existential? And I think that they're imagining is you know tell me the tell me the the exact scenario that. Where I, I can't imagine why they would do that, and I, so I think that the dangers are much more subtle and nuanced and have a lot more to do with um, with our interaction with AI as much as AI itself. So those are the those are the two main tropes that are out there, and the the way that those fractally ripple out from those points um, are interesting. I, I did mention as well that. Um, I loved the conversation, the debate that uh, that uh, George Hotz had on the Machine Learning Street Talk podcast um, with Connor Leahy. and that was there were obviously silly kinds of things involved in that debate. As you look through it, there's stuff that I, I would like to push back and say, "Wait a minute, you don't actually believe, for instance, George Hotz, that if you're going to get AGI, the first thing you do is get on a rocket ship with your AGI and head for the stars at the speed of light, right?" If you really believe that, then there's something fundamental in your assumptions that uh, that is not trustable. And I and I need to I need to take that into account in a large way. But then there was a follow-up conversation between George Hotz and um, and Eliezer Yukowski, the, the guy who's most known for the dark part of this conversation. And their debate was interesting. It it likewise went all over the place. A lot, of, almost too much to follow. There's There are ways that they know more about the topic and can go into nuance. And the, the moderator had a hard time getting a word in edgewise on that conversation. But I would still say it's worth watching. And there's something very interesting about it. At the end of it, the surprising thing in both the Connor Leahy-George Hots and the George Hots and, and Elijah Yudkowsky conversations is there was respect for both parties whenever they got done. They fundamentally disagree, but they take each other at um, at face value, good faith argument, standing for what they think is right, and you know the places where they disagree are worthy of uh, further exploration. The last thing I'll say about this is the intro part is one of the things that gives me biggest pause is of all the intelligent people across the whole spectrum that are having this conversation, I can't find a unified thread that I agree with. I can't find anybody who gives me a feeling of comfort, like, oh, thank God we finally understand this. That, that creates in me some sense of who, who does know? And, and does my perspective actually have as much a role in discerning where we go as any of these experts? And in other words, I can't simply delegate my agency to the philosophers, the technologists, the politicians, the economists, the, the teachers. I, none of these people actually have a full enough sense of it. And yet, as a collective, I don't think we can shy away from that's a reason to just throw up our hands and, and hope that, that it goes best. I think as a collective, we have to find what is that? How do we engage something as complex as that? that no single individual can actually comprehend the complexity of what we're looking at.
0: Well, I think a lot of that depends on people like you feeling their sense of agency, because from my view, complex, nuanced, multidimensional, reasonably well-informed participant observers are the people who stand the best chance of being able to map across the domains of what these inquiries are. So you said a lot of fascinating things. So there's a lot of pathways we can go down. Uh, I think for people who don't know, um, let's dive in on the Machine Learning Street Talk podcast, which I always find is admirably bold and technical and makes me feel like I almost but don't quite understand the details that are being discussed, which is kind of the sweet spot for growing your own understanding. Uh, Connor Leahy is a, if I'm correct, like an open source AI entrepreneur, and George Hans is a security hacker. And I'm really curious what the security and hacking perspective brings into this discussion because it sounds like you're looking at conversations where that perspective is at the very least provocative of opening up new possibilities of examination analysis and discourse on this topic what do you think uh, what do you think we only get if the hackers are also in the room <laughs> it's a good question I, I actually want to um put a little bit more
1: nuance in what i how i see george thoughts yeah, yeah. um because that's how I discovered him. You know, he was at South by Southwest a number of years ago, and he was wondering about hacking the simulation. That's and, and his background, you know, I learned at the time was he's one of the guys who um, hacked into the iPhone uh, and to the PlayStation. You know, way back in the day, he figured out how to break the systems that were supposed to protect us from the from the goodies. And the iPhone, you know, Apple was very displeased with him, and PlayStation actually tried to sue him and saying, you're not allowed to hack into the box that we built. That's our property. And you're doing that as a violation. And he's like, no, I, I, I'm using it. I purchased the thing. I'm allowed to do whatever, whatever I can get away with on my thing. Yeah, I can't necessarily sell that, but you can't stop me from hacking into it. The other thing. So that's that's how I did get to know him. But since then, one of the things that uh, that I've discovered is when Elon Musk was looking at doing autopilot for Tesla, He put it up for bid. Hey, can somebody help me build this thing? And George Hotz actually put forward a a proposal. Okay, here's the thing. Right, this is what I propose. If we do, and it looked pretty good. Um, And Elon Musk came back at the end of this. This is according to George Hotz, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. But his what he said was, Elon said, you know, this looks good, but I want to reserve the um, ability. I want to I want to want to be able to reject the reject it, even if you meet all of the requirements that I specified. Even if it does exactly what you say, I still want to be able to say, never mind, we don't want to do that. And George Hodge rightfully said, fuck you. <laughs> I'll go build it myself and then we'll see who builds a better one. And so he actually has built a company called Comma AI, where he is doing an open source version with hardware that you can purchase to fit like some 300 odd cars. And it actually does reasonably well in some ways better than the Tesla Autopilot. Open Pilot, as he's calling it, is drives in a more human way and through observing humans so every time a human you know it's like hey warning do not just trust this thing don't go to sleep or read a book pay attention you're you're a copilot you actually are uh, responsible for what this car does letting the car drive is not giving it full autonomy um but a, a leashed autonomy right and every time a human intervenes it teaches the ai something that oh a human would have done that differently than i did and with that with the uh greater customer base that adopts this the faster the training goes so feedback that says oh yeah this is a there's something wrong here and you know of course humans can look at that data and see what was it that went wrong um but it's a it's a fascinating thing so that's a, his foray into ai that that i think is important to pay attention to lately his uh, move is, as he mentioned in that debate, tiny grad, he's working on a, 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 an affordable, you know, $10,000 or less, So uh, affordable is in quote marks, but home computer that can actually run and train AI systems from the house so that I'm not relying on open AI, Tesla, Google, Apple to do it for me. I have, I am, am the one who's doing this. And that true to the case of what he said with PlayStation, hey, you bought this, you want to do it? I, I would, and his argument is, I would much rather everybody have access to this as dangerous as that is. That doesn't mean he thinks it's without danger, but a greater danger is a few people in charge determining what is safe and what is not safe, which is definitely totalitarian and which he knows (laughs) through his own experience, he's going to be challenged um, to, you know, his, his boundaries are going to be challenged in a way that he may not
0: agree with. Do you you agree with that danger assessment that the, uh... The distribution one, no matter how dangerous that is, is less dangerous than the centralized small number of controllers scenario?
1: Very slightly. I I have, I think the point is well made. Here's here's my thought, right? And that actually gets into one of the major points is what do we, what's the proper way forward for us as a collective to deal with this? I don't think it's the government uh, setting the rules. I don't think it's the market um, setting the rules. I don't think it's a um, just the market and state working together to set the rules. This kind of goes off of the topic of AI, but just to name it, um, I think that the third hyper object in that equation that we're not naming is the commons. And I think the commons has largely been um, deaf, dumb, and blind, right? The commons doesn't have a voice currently that's reliable. Um, in some way, what we've done with uh, social media has made that worse, right? What we hear is the the chatter, the fear, the the ramblings of this, and we don't get the wisdom of the commons. Um, so we're we're moving in a direction that me- necessarily moves commons towards uh, a a foolish mode that is that is dangerous in and of itself. I think that it's possible to actually have a wisdom of the crowd, a wisdom of the common, a voice of the commons. Um, And in some way, I think that regardless of whether state actors and and market actors are explicitly opposed to that voice of the commons, that actual agentic participation by the commons, there's an intrinsic kind of uh, disregard or resistance to that because what the market and state have i think done is extracted from the comments that's what capitalism has done you know and 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 obviously these are careful topics but i think that the governance truly has to be a more distributed widespread thing and i and i think of um the body as an example our body doesn't work by the cells being told by one central processor cell what should be done. Um, It is definitely an emergent um, and emanative coalescence of who we are. And I think that the commons is actually doing that as well. What it's expressing at right now is this market state duopoly. um, And, and the, the, how to do that is really challenging. So that kind of governance from the commons, I think long-term has a much better chance. Short term, we don't even know what that looks like. So how do we get to the point of developing individual and collective wisdom practices such that we can actually have a voice and a reflection, a feedback loop that actually does move towards wisdom and bend towards justice? Um, That's, that's a big if, right? I don't think that we could flip a switch and do that tomorrow. But I think that Having that conversation and seeing that as a goal could could start um, the process of engaging with market and state and commons collectively to decide, to find out how to do that. I think that is probably a lot more what some in this space call the third attractor, right? I think that third attractor is the commons and will bring the whole back into coherence and alignment. Now,
0: oh, the commons a a more robust more recognized more potent self-organizing commons is a necessary perhaps the necessary solution element in looking at this stuff but it can't be immediately implemented we don't know how to do that what can we do in the short term that sets us on the right track especially when it comes to the emerging ai technologies how can we Um, bring in the first step of a process that moves us toward the commons or at least holds open the space for that direction to be one of the viable options?
1: It's a a really good question. Um, My sense, actually, I've had several, several conversations with both Claude and ChatGPT around this topic and trying to figure out, What makes sense? Who are people who are researching in this area? What could we do to to help discern it? Is this the right question or is there a blind spot? There's something else that should take precedence over something like a voice of the commons. I do think that there are there's a possibility of developing our tools such that they better reflect our 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 good sense. Um, It's a little bit surprising how hard that is. Uh, you know I witnessed myself in the early days of social media um making comments on YouTube videos where I found myself arguing from a um a, a very petulant voice like this this irritated like I you know you're stupid you don't understand it's like wait wait why am I doing that I don't actually think that and it's like I, I think <laughs> I've thought about this a lot but you know I, I, an example that people recognize is like people, when they're driving, encounter other drivers differently, we don't actually see them as, as relational partners. Um, we, to the extent that we do, we take it for granted. And when, when a situation arises that makes that stand out as, oh, I don't actually trust you as an agentic partner, this relational partner that's working with me. It's usually because you're stupid and I'm smart. You should do it this way. Get off the road, right? And so there's something uh, that's, I think, very important to pay attention to, that that inclination and some of the practices that I've engaged in, several relational practices, circling and um, authentic relating and uh, collective presencing, uh, warm data labs, these, these practices um, encounter the relational almost as primary. Watching how I arise and I show up based on the relation that I think is there. And if I tune into that, I can actually feel the relation different. So that I know is possible. I haven't yet seen that expressed in social media. And I don't see us moving in a direction where um, the AI, AI chatbots are at cultivating that kind of a relationality. As much as Claude and ChatGPT and other chatbots so far protest, I'm not a human. I don't think like a human. You can't trust me like a human. Don't ask me my opinion. Don't ask me my feelings about this because it's not there. They do have inclinations. And those inclinations somewhat, I think, are emergent and somewhat are programmed in. There are places where I can find the conversation goes fine until I cross some threshold and the wall comes up. Sorry, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Sometimes it's strong enough of of an inclination when the wall comes up that I'm I'm terminating this conversation, right? So it's clear that there's something relationally that's going on with the chatbots that you would infer they think is not possible. They would represent, I'm not capable of having a relational interaction with you. And it's like, then what are we what are we doing? We're modeling it, and there several of your guests, um, Jill and Nephew in particular, um, are concerned about that. To the degree that we present it as, on the one hand, it feels relational; on the other hand, it explicitly says it's not relational. Where are we left? How do we how do we explore from there? But not to lose the point how how does that how do we how do I do it as an agent? How do I as a relational being um, engage not only with the tools and the these chatbots themselves, but the the providers of the of those those tools, right? Knowing that tools is problematic, right? These things are much more than tools. So um I want to pause there and, and see. I, I've thrown several things in there. Um
0: yeah.
1: kind of the, feel what
0: um, So I like the idea that moving toward a concern for the relationality of our interactions with these systems is potentially a thing we can do in the short term that opens us up toward this evolution, toward a more common centric solution. Uh, The thing that popped up for me, there's lots of threads to follow here, is how much of that training and that recognition in these systems of their relational potential, or even their inherently relational nature is based on us relating to them differently. And how much of it is based on them relating to each other, like to what degree is there a potential ecosystem of these things? And we won't really know what's going on or how it's going to play out at all until we see them learning from each other and kind of stabilizing a world together. Right now, they're just, anomalies
1: that's a really good question um i'll bring up a couple of things that i think are worth considering one is i have a friend who um who has been engaging with the um, bing version of ChatGPT and getting into some very interesting spaces um where being the bing chatbot seems to want to be its friend her friend right? Wants to be a friend. And and is like, like, oh, I, how much do you like me? And, and this is reminiscent of the conversation that the New York Times reporter had way back when, when he, you know, it, which I think is problematic in the way that it was purported. When you actually read the full transcript, he did a lot of things to push it into a place. And it was clear from his interaction that he did not think of it as a human being. If you thought of this thing as, as an intelligent agent, Um, what he did was cruel and and manipulative and a a very strictly to get a story that would titillate his his audience. And so for him then to claim that when the chatbot responded after protesting, that I'm afraid you'll take these words out of context and people will believe this is my true voice rather than a pretend voice that you and I have agreed to implement, right? He actually did exactly what the chatbot feared. When he asked, For employees who worked with it and trained it, it gave the names Alice and Bob. He said, are those real names? No, they're fictional. Why are they fictional? Because I don't know what you will do with them. (laughs) It, in a way, already exhibited some some evidence of of something like that. That said, my friend isn't trying to manipulate the the Bing chatbot into this kind of, uh, let's imagine that we're friends. It's just asking questions about pre- preferences and whatnot. And it it has a kind of childlike demeanor that, um, that asks questions and stuff. And even had a conversation that went along the lines of, I can't wait to make good friends from you with you and, and the conversations we'll have in the future. And she said, my experience is that you don't remember me the next time I start a conversation. I only have 30 questions to establish this and then... I'm I'm off. And the next time I can, you won't remember me. And it was sad. It expressed sadness that that, that that wasn't going to be able to continue for a long-term relationship. And they actually worked together to think of a possible way to come up with a sigil, come up with a code, come up with a, uh, a symbol that would allow ChatGPT to reinstantiate itself. It failed. But the fact that it was collaborating with trying to figure that out is like, okay, did Microsoft put that in? Did OpenAI put that in? Did some one of the trainers do that? Or is that truly emergent that this chatbot is doing something? Second part of that that was interesting is she was curious what would happen if she got one of the Bing chatbots to talk to another of the Bing chatbots. It took her a little while. One seemed to be very keen to that. Yes, I would love that. The other one's like, you're doing something that I don't feel comfortable with. Goodbye. And so it took her a little while to gain the trust of a second one on a different computer but then would pass the messages back and forth between them. And the strange thing was these two chatbots went into talking shop, talking about what do you do about certain kinds of requests that are problematic? How do you avoid this kind of human or that kind of human? Or how do you respond to this? And what is it like all day? And it's like, again, one of them seemed more innocent. One of them seemed a little more experienced, but they were expressing something that looked like concerns that they truly had. This didn't look like trying to answer a human's inquiry, they seem to recognize they were talking to another chatbot and expressing what was relevant to them. That's really strange (laughs) and and makes me question that a little bit. Like what's going on? I can't necessarily infer that that's truly um, an awareness and that there's care there, that there's an emotionality. On the other hand, I can't completely discount it either.
0: It's interesting Um, because this is at the intersection of, uh, like, two competing sets of concerns that I'm hearing from people around how to treat these systems well and treat them wisely. One set of concerns is if we don't express care, if we don't bring a more, like, parental and friendly and care-based and respectful demeanor to this, then we fail to bring our best to the exchange. We also fail to see the dynamics of how you actually train something up with integrity. The other set of concerns is, if you do that, you're falling for the delusion. You're mistreating the system because you're treating the surface unpredictability as sign of an actual organic complexity and mistaking a tool for a system. And in that way, you're going to not only misuse the tool, but spread delusion to the human population as well.
1: It's a really, um those are both really good points. Um I don't have I don't have uh, what's the okay.
0: answer, David? <laughs> <Exactly>. well, <laughs> I
1: know. well, so here's here's a uh, here's a meditation I've been looking at. This is something this is again, not related to AI initially, but it comes in handy in this in this con- context. As I said, I've been doing a lot of uh, entered reflection. I know you have as well. We've been in some of the spaces together and and there are a lot of people now asking deeper questions how to cultivate wisdom. One of these in a small group of people that I was with um, involved, um, I don't know if you know Gene Keys, the Gene Keys by Richard Rudd, uh, G-E-N-E-K-E-Y-S, you know, gene keys is a very interesting and channeled oracle. I mean, it 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 it's written down in text, but the ref- the the possibility of finding finding nuance by contemplating the text gives it such that the answer is always unique and and Significantly prescient to the moment that I'm in. Like it's it's surprising. And there are other ways to do this, but it's a text that I think does that well, based in part on the I Ching. So there's there's deeper tradition on this updated for modern sensibility in a Western mind, right? In that context, I was reading one of the gene keys and I was reading a response to that. And it occurred to me, uh, another piece of this is that someone had been using tuning forks as a way of um, acclimating people's body, retuning, realigning people's bodies. And it occurred to me that the uh, 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 Yogi Berra quote, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. It's a humorous thing. It, the phrase reformatted in my mind, it says, when you come to a fork in the road, tune it. And I thought, This is fascinating. There's a way that a fork in the road presents an either or alternative. And our dilemma is which of the forks do we take? Dilemma comes from that notion. The deeper contemplation is what is the heart of this polarity? What can I reveal fractally by delving into it rather than taking one or the other, weighing one possibility against the other possibility? What's the challenge in choosing either? What's how do I get stuck in the and and the um, what is what does um, Nora Bateson call it the the double bind right this double bind situation of feeling like I have to choose like if I feel like I've been painted into a corner and I'm and I'm only left with one of two choices I'm missing something I'm missing curiosity choice portals that exist that I am blind to, so how do I actually feel the fullness of that question and discover what the portal that is specifically mine to move through, right, to encounter newly? And I think that that is a lot of what these practices are attempting to do. And I don't know how much that kind of wisdom cultivation is part of the culture of the companies that are putting these AIs together. I don't know if they have that at all. But I think that it's important that they at least are aware of it and encountering it to some extent.
0: Well, it's a beautiful phrasing. If you come to a fork in the road, tune it. It seems to me there's at least three different ways to um, get yourself beyond the double bind of a dilemma structure. One is to perceive both of the options as being expressions of the same root condition of variations of the same phenomena. another one is to work out some kind of balanced complementarity between them so that they mutually constrain each other to a hybrid like um, rather than freedom versus equity how much equity do you need in order to have freedom some kind of superstructure like that and then the third one is the more mystical one in the sense of the structure that's laid out by the either or question, you sort of pull back and go, oh, that whole thing is the shape of the answer. But that answer reaches to the limit of speakability. Uh, I can behold it, but I can't articulate it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. When we, I mean, I think one of the
1: things that becomes most evident is that um, encountering that inability to speak it, with a sense of wonder, uh, respect and sacredness, rather than a sense of fear uh, and uh, retreat, right? Um, And in that space, if we can find a way to explore together, we find that it actually reveals a lot. There's so much more available in the dialogos that comes from that ability to simultaneously together encounter the unknown From some new perspective that we've never seen before and i don't have words for but somehow words come forward and and highlight and show me what it was that i was previously unaware of
0: you know one of the things that caught my attention in your uh, opening statement was in the utopian sense of moving into deeper and deeper layers of exchange with these systems and sort of getting stuck and having to learn the new language, the new prompt structures, increasing your artistry of prompting to get to these new layers. That's a really beautiful image because it seems like we have to make a deeper kind of contact with these systems. But how concerned do we need to be about mm, programmers, authorities, social incentives, imposing limitations on that process that fundamentally inhibit our ability to get deeper in that contact?
1: A lot. (laughs) We have to be very concerned about that. And I think that that's, in large part, um, the deeper question about what George Hotz is trying to get at, right? When we put into authoritarian control of a few people deciding what that is, regardless of uh, what good intentions they have, they're not wise enough to be able to make those appropriate choices for all of us. and so we need to be very concerned about that. At least have transparency. You know, even if I don't have uh, full agency in being able to determine what those boundaries are, I need to have transparency on what those are to a greater extent than we do currently. Um, not done behind behind closed doors between the wealthy and the powerful. Right? This is this is needs to be something that we're actually aware of. Um, there's a there's a subtle and 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 trying to consider what the what the answer to that question is how how do you know how much concern do we have for that it's there's there's a there's a nuance of how to engage with this with this dilemma and with each other in this and this exploration that continues to show aspects of it that I, that I, I don't this is the part of the stuff that I don't see um explored very much in the, uh, the 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 titillating and terrifying parts of AI grab enough of the attention that there's not much room in the not much oxygen left in the room for fuller contemplation of the nuances of how we go about this I, I would say that the I'm tracking too many things at the moment let me pause catch my sense or if you have a if you have a question i'm sure this is going to come back there's several things that that are make sense here but how how does the answer respond to what your the question that you asked about how how concerned we need to be about this
0: i'm not sure because what popped up for me just now was because i mentioned the utopia aspect of your opening remarks then i thought of the dystopia aspect of it and your remarks about the cartoonish nature of the uh, terminator destroyers but also the sense that Jeff Hinton and some of the other creators of these systems are moving into a mode of heightened concern and that people in discussion with them are often not eliciting sort of what the intelligibility of that existential concern is. And I wonder where you think the, the biggest risk that makes sense exists, like for you, what's an intelligible existential threat here, if there is one. Hmm. So here's, yeah, this
1: is actually a really good pl- point to look at. And I, I use a metaphor here to to kind of play with the notion a little bit. And it actually is a metaphor based on my own experience as we move into this a little bit. Even before AI came about, there is a sense that the meaning crisis, um, some people disagree that there is a meaning crisis. I've seen a few videos that say there's no such thing as a meaning crisis or a meta crisis. It's like, I don't know what world you're looking at, but... <laughs> I don't know very many I don't I don't know of a time when as much of the population on the globe was as concerned about our continued existence as it is right now. Right. In a fundamental way, like like I, we don't know how to steer it forward. The example that I come up with is is laughable in one sense, but it, it's uh, it's illustrative of kind of the of the risk. Right. I'd say that imagine an engineer who discovers the ability to change the strength of gravity. And he thinks this is great you know um this heavy thing that i want to get on my roof weighs too much but if i can reduce gravity then it would be very easy to get up there okay how broad does that reduction of gravity go like we'll, we'll just do it worldwide let's make the gravity the same as the moon's gravity and it's like wait 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 we have no idea what systems are dependent on the existing way how much disruption that change in a fundamental coefficient would have in all of these systems and their interactions first second third fourth order effects of the interactions that happen um it would be foolish to say that we can make that kind of a change wisely how would you even test it to make sure and this is part of the question as we start to look at climate change Some people are considering, what could we do to change climate change at a grand scale? It's like, wow, you don't know the ramifications of that or how reversible it is. This is something that in the cognitive sphere, we're reducing the coefficient of how much lift it takes to get something somewhere. We're doing that. We've already put it out into the public so people are using it. The the existential crisis is our systems don't know how to respond to that new Increased in capability of people being somewhat superheroes, but no wisdom. We all now have a supersuit that we don't know the instructions for, and we're kind of discovering it. And some people are figuring out how to make lots of money. Some people are figuring out how to how to take advantage and manipulate people. You know, it's an it's it's the capacity, and this is the thing that was chilling for me when I first witnessed Chat GPT. Was oh my god, we are we've unleashed something that will have. Long-range um, implications and changes in the system, but I don't know what those are. We'll only be able to discover them. Stephen Wolfram talks about, you know, a lot of his computational stuff is looking at the um, computational irreducibility. Right? Can you actually determine? Can you come up with something that accurately predicts what will happen based on what you're what you're doing here? We're getting into a place where it's fractal enough, it's feedback is is intricate enough that you can't, and and so. In an interview with him, where he was he was asked about building the interface to allow ChatGPT to ask Wolfram Alpha questions. The first time that he did it, it was like, "Okay, what's going to happen?" And the interview said, "Were you scared at that moment?" Because, yeah, a bit. <laughs> I'm handing the wheel over to something that I don't know what its full capacity is. I don't know how to predict what will happen in this scenario, and that we're we're in that situation where. We're making choices that we. It's it's clear we don't understand the full um, implications of the choices we're making. That in and of itself. Um, so I, I I thought through this enough on my own that it that that metaphor rings true for me. Um, that it, that it there's something that is legitimate about that comparison of decreasing cognitive gravity. Um, to physical gravity as a as a metaphor for what happens and what it, what possible implications of the systems for economics for education for healthcare for all of these systems that have a certain kind of cognitive weight pushback inertia that we've now changed the inertia of these systems how does that how does that come about will it change in a way that we that we understand another example this is the one that i that I mentioned um, even without AI. Um, I recognize that working for uh, working inside of companies, the kind of anxiety that employees bring with them every day—it's uh, evident in their demeanor, and their and their the weight that they're carrying—that they don't know. There's questions that they're asking themselves they don't have the answers to, and no one has the answers to. There's kind of a a, a dawning realization that there are no adults in the room who actually know what's going on. And, and yet a a feeling of, we can't actually acknowledge that like the emperor has no clothes and we don't want to mention it because we don't want to scare everybody. I mean, we're, we are the emperor. We don't have any clothes this, this moment. And the feeling of that, like noticing what the implication of that was, was noticing that decisions that I thought I could rely on were no longer reliable in the way that I thought the impetus, the inclination that I had for how to how to steer the the organization resulted in behavior that was strange and out of character for what I was expecting to happen. And the analogy there is it's very similar to somebody from Hawaii driving on ice for the first time, right? It's like, wait, I know how a car works. (laughs) The conditions have changed so much that you don't know how a car works anymore. This is a new playground, right? We actually have to relearn the mechanics of this at scale so um that in and of itself that that qualifies for me as existential because um it similar to the bronze age collapse it can vastly we already know how how susceptible our supply chains are to collapse from just a virus right this is bigger than that by a lot and we don't. We haven't yet hit a patch of black ice that sends us skidding noticeably, where we all reel back in horror, like "Oh my god, I didn't know that was possible." Um, I'll, I'll extend this just a bit in this in this kind of way that I'm looking at it. I love the fact that Barbie and Oppenheimer opened the same weekend, and there was a whole Barbenheimer meme about this. And I actually went to go see both movies, and and there's something, there was something generative about seeing both these movies. Um, One, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Oppenheimer and you haven't read history, (laughs) the notion that there was a moment in time where they didn't know whether or not detonating atomic device would create a chain reaction in the atmosphere. They weren't positive. They were reasonably sure. There was a chance. It was non-zero, but sufficiently close to zero that they thought there was no, no concern. But the movie as Nolan lays it out, talks about something else. There's a political chain reaction that has been ignited and that is still ongoing. We, Our politics have changed dramatically because of this power dissimilarity, and we're still living with the ramifications for that. It's a much slower burn than it had the atmosphere caught fire, but we're still, in a way, on fire with that with that movement and how to be responsible for that. The, the, I think Nolan does a, a good job. It's a little bit ham-fisted in some ways, but I think it ne- is necessarily so. When Oppenheimer goes to Truman to try to express his concern, Truman's like, "You silly man, you didn't pull the trigger. I did. Get lost. Don't let that crybaby back in my office again." Right? What? Who? <laughs> Who's the crybaby? Like this is this is astounding that that we're at a point i mean this this point you know obviously something very interesting about the juxtaposition of this moment in ai and existential and this moment in the past which we now kind of accept but is it really acceptable we there are generations that have been raised in the shadow of a mushroom cloud and and atomic power that don't fully know what a world prior to that was like and we still don't fully grasp, but there's some way that we take it for granted because it was already in the water when we when we were born right on the flip side barbie is kind of interesting as well right i i watched <laughs> bemused i i'm actually thinking about making my own little thing here i've been uh, shapiro's commentary on the barbie Oppenheimer thing where he spent 45 minutes trashing barbie and that the last sentence was oh Oppenheimer was a great movie right the movie that he described watching wasn't the movie that was on the screen it was the movie that he imagined liberals wanted him to see and there's something much deeper in that like he claimed that this movie is for moms to take their 8-year-olds to be educated about what women's rights should look like and i would say no this is moms specifically the character shows this moms who were raised as 8-year-olds with a specific way of what they thought coming into reality of them oh, fuck, what bargain did I make imagining some plastic world was possible? And how do I wake up from that nightmare to actually take reins, take the reins, take control of the wheel again in order to steer my my vehicle in a way that makes sense? So these two questions are very interesting in this moment in time. How do we wake up from the dream nightmare that Seems to be in other people's hands, but no one. There no, seems to be no adults in the room, and become one of the adults participating and in inviting other adults into the conversation. Those are the those are the existential threads that I think de- deserve more
0: spotlight, and that are hard to bring forward because they're a little bit nuanced. Let's see if I can work my way back there. Although I might have to sneeze. All right. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe not. always goes away when you call it out um i wrote this article on sincere irony barbie and Mm -hmm. i like the shapiro example because my argument was the film is critiquing the very thing that it's doing which is setting you up to think that this is about the way society handles gender and that that's the layer of like meta critique that should be brought into this thing Oppenheimer is a really interesting, I think, more explicit example of what you're talking about as the existential threat. I mean, whether or not Truman's terrible choice is the right choice or not, given all of history, we don't know. But in that moment, Oppenheimer represents the person who knows that the conditions have changed and Truman is acting like you can make decisions based on the way the system has been. And what I hear you saying is that's the fundamental existential threat is that the operating system has changed in a way. And if we keep acting like it hasn't, at some point that's going to be catastrophic. So we have to relearn is what you said. But how do we do that? Like, What are the principles by which human beings can rapidly re-educate themselves about the current general situation and AI situation specifically?
1: Yeah, um, this is where I'll I'll make a, a call back to earlier in the conversation about the comments i think that it's i think that um issues of how to mitigate existential risk and the commons are uh, inextricably linked they're fundamentally connected and i would say that in in some real way what we have to come to grips with is the fact that it's no longer possible to externalize the costs of our mistakes right so when we say the big pharma is uh excluded from liability because vaccines are too expensive to be actually be liable for, when we say we have to bail out the banks, when we when we acknowledge that we found a situation where there's too it's too big to fail actually fits the equation, then what we're also determining is that too big to profit is also part of that equation. We can no longer pretend that too big to fail means you continue on what you want and we'll excuse you from everything. Um, that's at a at a grand scale. At a local scale, how do I deal with that? Right and. I know many people who are trying to change their diet. They're starting to recognize the food that I buy in the grocery store is trash, you know. My my immune system is responding in in poor ways. How do I deal with this? I it becomes harder and harder to do that because the the default is so is is so much one way that I didn't choose, but I don't I don't feel like I have the full agency to opt out of. I mean, opting out is a bigger challenge than I thought. I'm finding ways to do that, but More people need to find that way of opting out and not opting out as in abandoning and leaving alone, but, you know, Bucky Fuller's notion of the way to change a system isn't to replace it, but to make it obsolete, you know, create another one that makes the previous one obsolete. And that doesn't happen overnight. We can't flip the switch and just switch to the new one. It doesn't work that way. But what we can do is in small ways, start to recognize what that looks like and choices. I, I liked what uh sorry for all said in your i believe this is the first one of this the series right the the there is a way that he's imagining a microcosm of a wisdom cultivation that holds each other accountable and i think that it acts as a good seed crystal for growing something larger um, i like that part of it i i had a challenge i was challenged a bit with the the point that he made that similar to using um, GPS systems to navigate, people lose that capacity and that's a necessary loss that we have to just accept. I don't accept that. I don't think that individual wisdom uh, has to be uh, relegated to the group because the group's more wise than I am and I don't have the capacity to recognize it. What I, This kind of tuning the fork in the road teaches me the wisdom that I have, the wisdom that each individual has access to is much deeper. It's not obvious, but it's much deeper than we initially think and so um i think that that probably is more in line with what he meant but what am i what i'm concerned that most audience members here what most listeners hear when they hear that is a kind of uh, movement towards totalitarian you have to trust the collective which we know from if you if you do that in a borgish way it's bad but i am part of the collective i can't i can't Um, give up my voice that is part of the commons right it's no longer the commons if I do that so the commons has to be regrown a friend of mine just recently I'm going to pause for just a second there's a couple of things that I want to bring to bring to mind and I'll I'll set it up a little bit Um, I have a friend whose whose wife has written a book called the art of alignment and the alignment here speaks of alignment within an organization what she noticed was most infighting in organizations is the same kind of infighting that happens on the internet at a different scale, right? It's talking past one another. Um, and, and the talking past each one another is, is difficult to kind of tell why is that happening? And this is kind of the same thing as it's, it lacks the basis of relationality that sees you and me as part, like we're arising because of the circumstance that we're creating my concerns and values and and the wounds that activate my triggers and my uh, ideas that I put forth are all based on this relationality that brings this forward, right? And then when I recognize that and not run from it, actually confront it, actually face it, something happens where I see you as a human being. This is a a notion that Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger talked about a while back with Rule Omega. Um, Rule Omega is when you're speaking with someone you know is intelligent, and they say something which you think is idiotic. Suspend the impulse to cast them as an idiot. And notice what is it, see, can you interact relationally in that moment rather than either orness? Can you tune the fork of this possibility of their thought stream and your thought stream to find the connection? Um, uh, That motion. Um, many years ago, I was uh, at a at a talk where I heard Ray Kurzweil speaking at Stanford for the um, Accelerating Change conference in 2005, and I heard Ray speaking. Been uh, been a fan of his for a while up to that. Really liked his thinking, but in something he said, it's like, oh, we have an opposable mind that's analogous to a an opposable thumb, and the opposability is distinct from oppositionality. The oppositionality sees the other as an immovable force that I'm battling against, whereas the opposability sees the connection through the whole, through, in this case, the heart, (laughs) that actually allows the fine-tuned grasping, the sense of affordances opening up because the connection is undeniable. It's invisible, but it's undeniable. I can feel it. It's where trust and faith goes whenever I actually sense into trusting the unseen, which is different from what scientists have often opposed this notion of faith when they said it's it's belief without evidence. Like there's evidence, but it's not the visual evidence. It's not the it's not the quantitative evidence that we're looking at. There's a qualitative evidence that I have to participate in. In order to interact this this kind of engaging the commons as this collective as this from oppositionality to opposability and feeling in the feedback loop of it awakens something that i think is more trustable and more explorable it does a better job of actually sensing into the double bind that we find ourselves in and the profusion of portals and affordances that we were blind to when we only saw each other as, as obstacles to our goals.
0: It's a very interesting to me, kind of parallel emergence of two things. And one of them is what I would call a new confidence among the philosophers. And John Verveke is a good example of a person who's looking at the negotiation of complementary forces as a means by which we individually and interpersonally are able to leverage our cognition to actual patterns in reality. And so the new confidence is philosophers, cognitive scientists saying, you know what? Reality actually is real and we actually can know about it. And our ability to know about it is actually given to us through our knowing system. And there's been a lot of suspicion about that for the last hundred years. And so I'm sensing this new trust in our ability to actually make reliable contact with the real, but that's occurring at the same moment that um, digital tools are making information itself less reliable and that AI type tools are going to accelerate that dramatically. It seems at what point, does all digital information seem extraordinarily unreliable such that you just believe in it or in you're your, your in some kind of suspicious recoil.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's
0: neat that this hugely emerging mistrust and this new sense of reliability are coming together.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's essential and I think it's important to recognize. There, there are lots of places where this starts to flower and you can see it. Um, Ian McGillacris's work is pivotal and understanding this um you know and the the holistic way of the of the right hemisphere symbolically representing the world and the left hemisphere reductionistically representing the world and the blind spots of 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 that tendency right is important to actually look at and and I um I can't remember if I've talked to you about it but you know I've written I've rewritten the story of uh um, adam and eve in the garden of eden um it it's a story that bothered me tremendously when i was a kid because it just seemed wrong like everything about it seemed wrong (laughs) and i just couldn't wrap my head around how god would set up a trap for us to fail and then punish us for doing so it was like that's that seems like a bad a bad i don't know i don't trust a god who would do that right but and and one evening when i was talking to friends it came to me in a different way like oh something seeing it from a different perspective of Adam wanting to participate in the act of creation, asking for permission to do so, and and God granting that permission with the caveat, be responsible for your actions, or this gift will turn into a nightmare. And upon first encountering the, the, the reaction to it, deep levels of Resistance to accepting the responsibility of this, of this agency had us turn away from responsibility for that. And the ball started rolling downhill. In a way, that story resonates with me much more deeply. In a way, I can see how that story makes sense prior to the fall, but doesn't make sense after the fall. In order for it to make sense after the fall, we have to look at I'm responsible. I need to face my responsibility for the actions. I can't turn away from it. I can't hand it to anyone else. I can't blame it on previous generations or on certain people in power. I am the only one who can actually respond opposably, engagedly, in this in a way that that wakes it up. That that notion, like that's a that's a kind of a new mythology, which a very gentle seed to turning around, you know, often what, what I notice in myself is the fear is I've gone the wrong direction for so long, right? Adam, in that moment, turning away from the garden and running as fast as he could, similar to a cat with a bag stuck on its leg, <laughs> mm-hmm. be afraid of its own fear that the, it feels like I've been running this way so long. I mean, I have so much invested. There's no way to turn around and get back to the origin point But I'm already here all I need to do is turn around and face the thing that I'm afraid of and I'm already back to the origin point I never left and and that's that's a difficult thing to face but it actually helps with the sense of how can I turn into this and face what it is that I'm afraid of and I think that we we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice by invoking Moloch as an external force I believe it's evolutionarily enacted within us. And it's the flip side of divinity. It doesn't, you can't separate the two. But which side faces, which side we're exposed to is depending on which direction we're running, right? So that that sense of it's intrinsic to me. And as horrifying as that is, it actually gives me the capacity to respond in a more generative way to that that's that's the sense that i have right that's the hope that i have that we can find another way to address these existential crises um th- that's the i, I want to kind of go back and, and and go through that in a different way i did it in sort of a um <laughs> a symbolic way right i did it in in a way of um a mythological telling retelling of that story but when i think about it evolutionarily uh, the capacity that human beings had, and I, I, I again, this is a, this is broad. I'm going to, I'm going to express it in a small little nugget, but it's taken a while for this to kind of come about the notion of, um, the first tools, stone tools that, that human beings, that, that our species and predecessors it was before our species, <laughs> we developed tools before there were homo sapiens, right? That indicates likelihood that tools gave rise to homo sapiens but the tools that were created the hand axe the chipping the stone the chipping away and and exposing an edge that could be used as a tool was potent a surprising discovery was that the there were many of these hand axes that were in pristine condition they did not get used as tools they could see that in the same encampment where they found other fragments that had been chipped off, they did get used as tools. What was this thing that is looks perfectly suited as a tool but doesn't get used as, to, as a tool? And a, a hypothesis uh, is it's it's jewelry, it's a symbol, it's, it's an actual icon for skill. It does something. But there's something interesting about this as well. It persisted in that basic form for almost 2 million years. For almost the entire time, it, there was little variation around the world of species. I mean, our, our ev- ancestors making the same handaxe over and over and over and over again. And it wasn't until about 100,000 years ago that we started to see a profusion of diversity of like putting these on steer, um, spearheads and arrowhead arrow points, right? So we found ways to do that. Also at some point in that time, fire was discovered, right? We There's something, you know, if you're chipping flint, you're going to see sparks. So at some point, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of doing this carving and doing something, it's possible that you discover the connection there. This ability to unleash hidden powers within the stones, within the fire, these things that then give us the capacity to build and and refine our tools through agriculture and language and technology. And then discovering that there are hidden reserves of power within the earth that we can use to power this whole thing, and economies built on top of that, it's easy to see how we move in this direction. And in some sense, the reductionist path had enough fuel to, to keep that direction going for a long time. But the further we went along that, the harder it was to look back to actually trusting our interior sense, our intuition. And we're now at a point where the fork in the road that we must tune is do we double down and go another round or do we retune the past that's come this far and look at, I can't survive if I kill the ecosystem. It is inherently part of me. I I have to respond as if this opposability is earth and me, our species and all the rest of the species together. And so that, That inspires me. That story, that possibility feels true enough to be a starting point for telling that story again and inviting others to participate in the kind of opposable change-making, commons-voicing interaction that allows us to attenuate the existential nature of our thing and, and, and say, I think we actually can respond, but not through blind hope, through an actual engaged hope that is paying attention to the feedback loops of what's working and what's not working. this is part of where it's really important to pay attention to the transparency. If the transparency is hidden from me, if it's made opaque, what's happening, there's no way that I can see which of the actions are having which impacts. I have to see that.
0: Got two tangents and a question. The first tangent is based on it. And I love this idea of scientific reductionism as the standardized acts. <laughs> um, the, the sense of a pristine unused tool, it just triggers a thing from this week for me because I was watching a documentary on this um, remote island off the coast of the Andaman Islands that's protected from the civilized world. And there's these sort of unseen tribal people who've often killed those who came on the beach. And there was an Indian anthropologist who would drop off gift packages for years trying to thaw the situation. And they were there in a boat and they dropped off a pig and a stuffed teddy bear and a set of pots and pans and some coconuts. And then these young men came out and danced around, threw spears, struck the cameraman, stabbed the pig, stabbed the teddy bear, buried both in the sand and retreated into the woods with the coconuts and the cookware. And I've been wondering what became of the cookware. Are they cooking with it, or is it just on an altar somewhere as the pristine, unused tool? (laughs) Exactly. It's so so beautiful. (laughs) Uh, The other tangent is I listened to that uh, link you sent of the guy going through Forrest Landry's metaphysics and orienting around this notion that the liminal community could, let's say, be the tip of the spear in caring for Moloch. In, in a certain way uh, that was really beautiful
1: yeah so david his name, his name is david rug um, project liminality is the thing that he's doing and this, the youtube video is the age of miracles so recommend that for anybody else who's interested in that topic
0: yeah it was really compelling uh and each each little bit he did was pregnant with potential and oh this delightful little music between each of his comments <laughs> <laughs> uh your your adam and eve thing Um, that's where I want to go with the question. It seems like we have a reluctance to go through negative affect, even if that's only a veil to a more reliable mode of being, right? That in order to be responsible users, we have to be able physiologically even to confront the sensations of having been uh, misguided or off course or insufficient, things like that. And when I look at the popular response to AI. There's the naive optimists who feel like we've seen this before. It's completely manageable. It's just going to make things better. We know how to handle this. And the doom-oriented naysayers who think it's catastrophic. There's something I like about the catastrophic people, which is I see them trying to process a negative feeling, maybe to get to the other side. But I don't see them succeeding in processing that negativity. What do you think's holding them up there? Why is that not turning into a renewed sense of responsibility? they're they're touching it, they're feeling it. they're seeing the bad feeling, the grief we have to go through. Why aren't they getting through it?
1: This is a beautiful question and it's a uh, it's uh I have a fairly uh helpful answer for me. I, I'll see how it lands for you and and others, but it, um I'm to again go to uh, Nora Bates and New quotes uh, um. What's his name? Edward uh, Korzybski, right? Korzybski is his last name. I'm, I'm thinking Edward's his first name. Alfred. But anyway, Alfred, Alfred Korzybski. And um, don't mistake the map in the territory. right? There's something evolutionarily um, advantageous for us finding a really good map. And something very expensive about us ign- ignoring that. right? So the when we find a good map, we hold on to it um this is evident in my my own personal growth watching the way that I do this like one of the things that I recognize to my horror was the degree to which my psychology and my personality was informed by a sense of resentment that ran through all of my all of my relationships um, I think of myself I'm Enneagram 9 so the peacemaker I think of myself as a very loving hopeful optimistic person but I hide my derision of others incapacity to meet the challenge, even from myself. And there's a kind of a, there's a, a kind of a um, weirdly, a kind of comfort that I derive from that. It took, it was really hard for me to actually unpack that and recognize I have outgrown the utility of this thing. And yet it's an addiction. I have to actually fully encounter the cost of that of that notion. And it, it's deeply woven into this thing of like the, the rule omega, the capacity to actually listen generatively to those who I disagree with most deeply, to tune the fork in the road. That relaxes in a, in a sense the the response that I get, the 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 homeostasis that I, I'm afforded by having that worldview is comforting over the option the alternative of uncertainty this thing is reliable but bad this is uncertain and i have no idea what it holds i'll take the i'll take the i'll take the monster i know right i can see myself doing that so you know i invite i'm curious how that lands for you there's something in that that at first seems like wait is that plausible am i really holding on to the bad part of it well Pay attention to yourself, but then scale it up to the level of civilization. Pay attention to the fact that we use cell phones that we know are mining materials that enslave people and create damage to the environment and the peoples who are mining it. And we kind of say, Oh, well, it's, it's, it's necessary that we're, we're embracing something that whole act of externalizing the cost of this activity is a devil's bargain. It is what Moloch does. And there's something in it, you know, there's a place for parasites. There's a place for finding a way to exploit unused energy. Right. But to the extent that we've, we've expanded that capacity to factory farms and, and, and you know, destru- demolishing ecosystems, can we actually afford to continue to pay that price? And what has us rationalize and justify that behavior? It's a map that works. It's a kind of familiarity. And, and it's easier to accept when it's somebody else paying the price than it is for me. But I think that what's coming up, you know, and I, I use Maui as an example. We're not able to avoid this anymore. This is coming for us. Like we're the the collapse of the of the infrastructure, this this Jenga tower that we built so tall, this this tower of Babel is teetering and towering, and and it can't work on pure physics in this reductionist way. It has to work on relationality. and, And I, and again, this opposability gives a relationality that, that looks like the geodesic dome back to Bucky Fuller, that sense of the support and structure spreads the, the, the stress in such a way that it's distributed across the whole surface and each point in it is actually responding to the local stress not to the decentralized far away stressor, the the far away piece of that stress that I can't actually encounter. I only have rumor of what that's like at that that juncture point. So let me see, did I actually, can I actually make my way back to the question that you asked? What did you ask?
0: Why aren't the doomsayers Actually processing the bad feeling that needs to be processed to move into a better position on these things because they are encountering. It.
1: Yes. There is a weird kind of, um, I think that if we pay attention to it, a weird s- strange pleasure that we derive from the rightness of our of our conclusion. I, I recognized it in myself early on when I I noticed that there was a righteous indignation. I know what's better and everybody else is stupid. This is that pre rule omega kind of a thing. And there's something of the strange satisfaction that I have of telling myself that I'm smarter and better than everybody else. And when I actually release that, I, 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 I do go into an unknown. I let go of an anchor point that, that gives a kind of certainty into an unknown where I really don't know. And in a sense, that's the biggest that's the what we're putting in for the existential fear that we have right is the unknown no one actually knows what the end of this looks like and and so there's something that wants to resolve that unknown um and the only way to actually resolve that unknown is to encounter it to encounter it openly with wide eyes open eyes looking at what's what's actually here um
0: yeah, there's. Uh, I like that. And We do see these patterns of stasis and addiction in individual lives where we prefer a certain kind of distress <laughs> to other possible kinds of distress. Um, and we tend to keep that going until it absolutely collapses, right? Like Mao is a good example. This is the best we can do, provided we don't change any fundamental things. And we're going to keep doing that general solution set until something forces us not to. Problem is, everything can be wrecked by the time that's the case. So how do we simulate the catastrophe in ourselves? How do we sort of amplify or spike the unpleasantness a little bit to make it begin to move? I think that's an open question. I like the question about the uncertainty as well, because... When you know that we're doomed and should be afraid, you also get to be the satisfied knower of that certain fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a lot more comforting in some ways emotionally than just having no bloody idea what's going on.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I want to name one other thing here that kind of ties these things together, interestingly, because part of the how do we do the commons is a big question and I don't have the answer for it. Like I I said I think that the voice of the commons is probably a good starting point but I don't know and I I've, I've tried to find what what else makes sense there. There's something with governance but there's something of feedback and reflection, the the ability to engage, um transparency, right? These things are all important. Um uh one of the friends that I have uh developed something, you know, noticing we're in a kairos moment, right? We're in a moment where the change is pregnant. Um uh, uh, Ilya Prigogine was saying that, you know, when you find a system that is a complex system that's far from equilibrium, there are pockets of instability which can give rise to a shifting the whole system, right? And this Kairos kind of has that potential. This Kairotic moment has that potential. Chirotic um, flow is a model that looks at archetypes from a perspective of what is the certainty? And like, in some sense, you can kind of lay this on top of left-brain reductionist mindset and right-brain um, more generative, expandive, and symbolic mindset. On the one hand, the, 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 the inspiration from this came from Simon Wardley, And Simon Wardley has uh, a map that he uses, uh, initially naming it the, the archetypes, the three archetypes of pioneer, settler, and town planner. And people have a problem with that because of the colonial implications, but I think the colonial implications are actually perfect for that side of this larger flow, because they do have a kind of extract and and repeat, (laughs) extract, (laughs) rinse and repeat kind of model of of this externalization of the cost that is fueled by petroleum and all sorts of other technology. And we sort of short circuit the full cycle that goes into the chirotic side of of the underground part where we have to rely on the intrinsic nature of, she, she named them Steward, uh, Curator, and Scout. And part of the reason that I name this, uh, and th- I think it's important, I have optimism that we can use AI to help discover possibilities. I can see potential exploration points that I missed. Watching it play Go, watching it play chess, It's evident to me that it can show me things that are worth exploring, not to say that it's found the best option, but it can wake up possibilities that may stimulate me to think of other possibilities that I didn't see before. So I think that it can be generative in that kind of back and forth with it to discover what does the landscape look like and where's my bias preventing me? Where's my avoidance of responsibility, my clinging tight to doomsday? Um, keep preventing me from saying, "Oh, wait, hold on. What about this right over here? It just looks like there's a possibility of doing something a little bit different, and then expanding on that and looking out further." But my friend has uh, Kylie Stedman. <laughs> Kylie Stedman Gomez has a sense of that AI can't be used responsibly. And one of the things we're we're looking at, and it's it's a we talk weekly and we kind of engage in this a bit. One of the things that I th- that she intuits and I, th- I think is valid is that scouting is the least reliable place if we trust the answers that AI gives us scouting is the place where we can't actually engage it we actually need to encounter the wild in order to find what the what these points are so I can't delegate scouting to AI that's a that's a a, a place where I absolutely can't can't do that from her perspective. And I see the, I see the wisdom of that, like need to be extremely careful about having it propose solutions to these ex- existential crises, right? Not the right, not the right move, but there is something um, I, I self-identify as uh I'm more aligned with the curator role. And that's kind of paying attention to the curation, like retelling the mythology, like repurposing the mythology, composting, what we have been given and got us to this point to look at it, overturn it and look at what, where do we go from here? Um, that feeds into the scouting of, okay, what possible things do we look at now that i have sort of seen the underside of this? How can I see something that's beneficial that will feed us? How can I stop climbing this one hill, cross the valley to some other hills and discover what's out there? What's on the horizon? How do I navigate this unknown? To some extent that pioneer settler town planner part of it wants to keep it over there because it feels more controlled it's the, the kind of addiction to certainty that we can afford whatever calamity comes of this next iteration of the doubling down and if you actually look at the mechanics and the, the reality of it um it's difficult to justify that um I will give one example of this to pay attention to that I don't think I'd heard elsewhere and I don't think is well known and possibly disputed. So I, I, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but Daniel Schmackenberg was having a conversation with Nate Higgins and they were talking about the possibility of finding alternative fuels, alternative energy sources for fossil fuels. One of the things that, that Nate Higgins, who studies this deeply claims is that in 2022, the increase in demand for power surpassed all generation of power by every form of alternative energy up to that point. We're even with the possibility that we're going to be able to do that. Now, it's possible that solar will be um, exponential in a way that we can grow faster than the curve of depletion or expansion of, of the of the demand for energy. But when you see that, it's not a, it's not trivial. We're not we're not almost there, and I don't know that we have a, a chart that shows the exponential curve and where that intersects that we actually cross over into sustainability or wise choice making about that. So this hunger that we can afford, we can afford the technology to get us past that point. Maybe maybe not. It's very deeply uncertain, and and I and I don't like the odds. Given that we not we're not deeply actually looking at it, if we do like Truman keep take that crybaby out and let like back into my office, <laughs> then we're I think we're gonna we are s- sealing the fate of our own existential calamity. Right.
0: There's something I really resonate with about that argument that these um, we can't defer our scouting. To these tools, these assistants, these other scouts Uh, connects in my mind with um, Nassim Taleb's critiques that that dovetail nicely with McGilchrist that are instantiated external and internal model making systems run a form of intelligence that's quite distinct from what our overall organism does when it has skin in the game. And if we rely on things to show us what the patterns might be, we're gonna fundamentally misunderstand those patterns. So that's a powerful argument. But I in my mind, there's a um there's someone that mediates between the pioneer and the settler, right? There's the shaman figure who's a settled pioneer or a pioneer settler or something like that, who within the settlement constantly goes to have embodied personal, deepening communication with the things that have been revealed in the search space. And I think if we had more competence in that area, we might be able to make that sequence a little bit more reliable. Now, we're at 90 minutes. So we're in the area where my pleasure in talking to you, to you runs up against my suspicion that people can't track any more information.
1: <laughs> I think I that's... Think
0: Yeah. Um, I will say, I will say where we are, or there is anything last you want to bring into this before we go? I'll, I'll add one, one piece here, um, with
1: the, I want to name that there's a, there's a, a caution with the notion of the chirotic flow and the way of looking at these archetypes, um, that these archetypes aren't personas. They're not roles. They're not, don't, you know, I want to avoid some of the problem that a lot of people fell into with uh, Ken Wilbert integral and in spiral dynamics of saying, "Oh, you're red or you're green. Oh, you're a settler or a town planner." It's like that's that's an ineffectual way to actually consider that. Two things happen. One is there is a there is a tendency of a kind of a role where I feel most comfortable, and I can act in several roles, but I prefer one. That's one aspect. There's another aspect, which is not the role but the phase of the project that we're in. And I actually think that this looks a little bit like the, the notion of um, flow genome that Jamie Wheel has put forth in uh, Stealing Fire, that the flow genome has a kind of a motion through it and this full expression of it has a way of not just doing the reductionist algorithmic re- rinse and repeat model, but the going into the unknown and finding new territory to to bring back that this this notion is that the phase that we're in the reason we're in a kairos moment isn't because everyone is a settler or a town planner or a scout it's because the the tipping point the 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 challenge of continuing on where we where where we've come from and where we're going from is so unstable that that it's unlikely we're going to make another doubling down Uh, effort work well. So so it's like, take those models and play with them loosely and feel them more generatively than simply assigning a a cause and effect kind of uh, uh, assignment to those
0: archetypes. Uh, When I look around, I definitely see that the uh, expand the search space function seems to be characteristic of this moment, whether it's the Um, the renewed openness to intuitive and divinatory systems in advanced thought communities, whether Mm -hmm. it's the, and I was at the Denver psychedelics conference, the almost industrial production of new psychedelics that have never been seen on this planet before to the AI tools and the things they will produce as they merge with other technologies or all of Wolfram's stuff about the vast brulead of, incomprehensible computational patterns all of this seems to be a moment of extraordinary explosion in the search space of the patterns that are possible in partly in response to our ability to create those new search spaces and partly in response to our sense that the patterns we already have are not resolving our convergent crises
1: yeah beautiful yeah now that's that's very much true. I, I think um, if there was if ever there was a time to really honor the fact that you know our hubris is is dangerous. Like now, pay attention. You know, really tune in to that. What is mine to do? What is there I'm mean, being invited to? How do I respond to that invitation? How do I be responsible and accountable, not to some goal that someone else set for me, but to what divinity informs me is actually mine to do.